Our second scripture passage is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The word of the Lord. As the, uh, the weest ones are heading out, we'll, uh, let me introduce you to a good friend of mine, Bill. Bill Haley has uh, been a minister for years. I got to know him about 10 years ago, maybe less actually, eight, nine years ago when I started working at the Falls Church. Um, and Bill was one of my favorite preachers, people that I love to hear preach, but he also made me a little bit nervous because I knew him privately and I wondered if the things that, that he was like privately would come out in his preaching, and it often did. Um, <laughs> and much to the chagrin I could say the same thing, what? mind you. Yes, it's true. But I am very excited to have him here. One of my sons who remembered being at the Falls Church said, oh, I think I remember him. I think he was pretty good. Or was that because you told me he was good? I can't remember which it was. But either way, I really appreciate Bill being here. I've been wanting to have him here for about five years since we started the church, and this is the first opportunity we've had to have him. So let me say a prayer for you and then hand the word of God over to you to preach for us. Lord, I thank you for Bill and for his uh, gifting and for his calling. I pray your blessing upon him that the mm. word of God would come through him to us and that we would receive what you would speak to us this day. In the name of Jesus, your son, we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Johnny. Um, Johnny has been a good friend for a long time. Um, you know you've got a good man for a pastor 
even if his jokes are a little questionable at times, almost perhaps sinful, but that's okay. He's a priest, so he can absolve himself. He's fine. That's, of course, one of the reasons I like him. Uh, I've been really excited to be with you all this morning. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. One of the reasons is just so that I can, so that I can see so many familiar faces and which ones they are. Um, and so already I've gotten to see about 20 of you where it's like, oh, you're here at Christ Church and I didn't know that. That's so great. Um, so it's really a delight to be here. And, and I hope to get to know you better. And if I got to sit down with each one of you and was trying to get to know you quickly and deeply, here would be my question. What's something about you that if I don't know it, I don't know you? What's something about you that if I don't know it, I don't know you? I don't know you. I hope I get to hear a few of those things after the service. But here's what you need to know about me if you're going to know me at all. In other words, if you don't know any of these things, you really don't know me. First, I'm married to Tara, and we have four little kids. You'd have to know that even though I live out in the country in the Shenandoah Valley and have for the past six years, most of my adult life has actually been spent in the inner city uh, or in developing world contexts. To really know me, you'd need to know that I'm passionate about justice and the poor and racial reconciliation. To really know me, you'd need to know that I'm very familiar with disillusionment. Disillusionment in the realm of my own deepest dreams, in the realm of the church, um, with my family of origin, in the realm of romance, and disillusionment with God. And like you, I know what it is to be profoundly disoriented. Like all of a sudden, a black fog settles in. When things turned out so differently than you thought, and a far cry from what you'd hoped. I've been a pastor now for over 20 years and a spiritual director for more than 10. And after having spent so much time off the surface and deep in the real lives of many people now, I've come to know this, that if you're 30 years or older, it's pretty much guaranteed that you've known real pain. Can I get an amen? You know this, probably from your own experience. If you're 30 years or older, you've probably known some darkness. You've probably encountered disillusionment in some deep area of your life. And disillusionment can be a great gift, just as it was for two disciples on a lonely seven-mile stretch of Roman road connecting Jerusalem and Emmaus. We just heard their story from Luke 24. We know one of their names, Cleopas. But we don't know the other one, and I love that. And I'm not even going to speculate on who that might be. We usually call that disciple the unnamed disciple. And precisely because he or she is unnamed, we can put our own name into this story, and we can enter it. You know, like Cleopas and Johnny, or Cleopas and Ryan, or Cleopas and Nan, or Cleopas and your name or Cleopas and Bill. We can easily imagine ourselves in this story. So remember a time, or maybe it's now, when you felt disillusioned or, or disoriented, or you didn't know what was going on, and God felt very, very far away, maybe even dead to you. And you are walking down a dusty, cobbled road with a good friend, trying to figure things out, trying to make sense of it all. You know, you can still go 
to the Emmaus Road in Israel even today. You can still walk on parts of it even today. Basically, what remains of it looks like old paving stones embedded in the dirt. It's a real place. It's, these two disciples are real people. They had a real encounter with Jesus who really rose from the dead. That's what we celebrated last week, and we're still celebrating it this week by looking at this story that happened on that first Easter Sunday. All right? So Jesus raises from the dead. Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb while it was still dark. She finds it empty. She runs back. She gets Peter and John. They see the empty tomb, but they run back home. Mary stays next to the empty tomb weeping, and the angels tell her that Jesus is raised from the dead, and then she meets Jesus face to face, and Jesus says, go tell my disciples that I'm alive, and that's what she does. She goes back to Peter and John and the rest, including Cleopas and the other disciple in our story, and she tells them, I have seen the Lord. In other words, Cleopas and the unnamed disciple, they were real disciples. Like, they were, they were real followers of Jesus who had been with him. They weren't part of the 12, but they were still part of the inner circle. They were still part of Jesus' core community. And they had had an awful, awful weekend getting their hopes smashed. Watching their beloved master get betrayed, tortured, disgraced, and then crucified. And now their own lives are under threat for having been part of his company. We don't know how long they've been with Jesus, but we do know that they believed in him. We do know that they had pinned all their hopes on him. So in verse 21 of our passage, they said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the Messiah, that this was our deliverer, that this was the man who was gonna kick out the Romans and restore the kingdom of God to Israel. We had hoped he was the one to redeem us. And now he's dead. Like, really dead. Like, crucified dead. And we were really wrong. Really wrong. I had reoriented my life around this man, and now he's dead. So Cleopas and the other disciple were in Jerusalem at the end of the worst weekend of their lives with the other followers of Jesus who were trying to make sense of it all, who were heartbroken, they were scared, they were confused, they weren't sure what to do next, they were disillusioned. I'd really believed something, but now there's no way that could be true. You ever felt that? I thought something was true, but now there's no way that can be true. So they're commiserating with the other disciples, and then Mary Magdalene shows up and she says, I have seen the Lord. It's like, whoa, what? There's no way. That's not possible. People don't rise from the dead. What does this mean? But the Passover weekend was over, and they had to get home. They probably had to go back to work Monday. They probably were going to get back to normal life. So they left, and they started walking. Verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. I love this. 
You know, Jesus probably knows that he's going to show up later in the evening to the other disciples, but he also probably knows that these two disciples aren't going to be there. Right? So he goes after them. He shows up to Mary Magdalene. Nobody else sees him yet. He goes after them because he knew that they weren't going to be in the room when he shows up and says, peace be with you, I'm alive. When they are disoriented, he seeks them out and he finds them. But when he comes alongside, they don't recognize him. Verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And I love this too. Just because Jesus feels, just because God feels absent to us doesn't mean that he is. It usually means that we have yet to recognize him or that he has yet to reveal himself to us. Sometimes God has good and deep reasons for making it hard to recognize him. The details are way too much to dive into today, but I'll tell you, once in my life, it felt like God was, was cruelly absent in an important area of my life for about 10 years. You know, I knew his presence in other areas of my life, but in this particular area, uh, I'm not so sure. And then when he showed up and revealed himself with remarkable speed and brought a far more gorgeous resolution to my angst than I ever could have dreamed up myself, I realized that all throughout those 10 years, God had not been silent he had actually been working the details behind the scenes in ways that I would have never known that he was doing with remarkable specificity and remarkable detail that only could he could have done in such a way that when he moved, his reality and his involvement was undeniable. I'll tell you, I'm not kidding. It was almost like meeting Jesus face to face. It was that clear that God was real and that God was involved. And I told him after that, I committed to him, I will never doubt you again. And I haven't, even though since that time, I've still walked through some pretty dark valleys. Just because we can't recognize God doesn't mean that he's not there. So Jesus comes alongside, and he talks to them. Verse 17, said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Right here we see exactly where Cleopas and his friend are. Jesus asks a simple question, and it opens up wordless grief. They're walking, right? Jesus says, what are you talking about? And it stops them in their tracks. And they just stand there, probably not even sure where to start, and all of a sudden having to deal with a dark swirl of sadness, confusion. Have you, ever, have you ever not wanted to say something because you knew that if you tried to talk, you'd probably start crying? We've all been there, right? That's where they were. They stood still looking sad. Finally, Cleopas speaks up, verse 18. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? That's like being up on Capitol Hill on the night of September 11th, 2001 in a stunned silence, not sure what it all means, and somebody walks up to you and says, what's going on? Where is everybody? 
Cleopas can't believe that this stranger doesn't know the things that have happened in Jerusalem over the weekend. And so Jesus, and I've got to think with a twinkle in his eye, says, oh, so innocently, verse 19, what things? Of course, Jesus knew exactly what went on, on every level, better than anyone. And here, Jesus is a great spiritual director. He knows exactly the answer to the question, but he still asks it. And then he just lets them talk. And they talk. They tell Jesus his own, his own story through their own eyes. Who they believed him to be, that he was condemned to death, that he was crucified by their own people, and that they'd put all their hope on him. And then they go on, but now we don't know what to think because some of our women say that they saw him and that he's alive, and our other friends went and they found the tomb empty as well. And so Jesus, maybe shaking his head a little bit, maybe with a little bemusement in his voice, maybe with a chuckle says, oh, you foolish ones. And so slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And right there in verse 26, this is the theological point of the story. Okay? So far, we've been looking at this passage through a discipleship lens. And, and here's a main point through the theological lens. On the heels of the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus himself is quick to tell us that his suffering and death were necessary for the forgiveness of sins and for the conquering of death. What happened to me, he says, is what the Bible has been saying for centuries that was going to happen to the Messiah, to the Savior. This is not out of the blue. This has been prophesied. This has been foretold. This is the way it was meant to be. This is how God is going to redeem the world. He's going to do it through the suffering and through the death and through the resurrection of his own son. And so Jesus was beginning to help these two disciples, confused, disoriented, disillusioned. He was beginning to help them to see better, to understand more, to, to get the big picture, to understand reality the way it actually is, to understand God the way God actually is, to understand how God acts in the ways that God actually acts, and ultimately to see Jesus for who he actually is. Earlier in the sermon, I mentioned this, and I don't know if you caught it or not. I mentioned that disillusionment is a great gift. Anybody hear that? And you might have cocked your head and said, really? How can that be? Well, let's break the word apart. Disillusion. What's an illusion? Yeah, something that is false. An illusion is something that you think is real, but it's not, right? To diss it is to get rid of it. To become disillusioned is to stop believing what is false. That's why it's good. That's why it's a gift. Once we stop believing something that is false then we are much closer to being able to believe what is actually true and to know the God who is actually true instead of the God we might have falsely imagined him to be. 
Am I making sense? So a simple example that's true for most of us. In our early in our early years of faith, in our early stages of faith, when we are still somewhat of an immature believer, and you know that has nothing to do with chronological age, you can be a very mature believer in middle school. Do you know that? You guys can be as mature as any of the adults in this whole room. You can also be 60 years old and be a baby in the faith, right? So when we talk about stages of faith, we're not talking anything about chronology. We're talking about spiritual development over a lifetime. In our early years of faith, we might think that if I do everything right and that if I do what the Bible tells me to do, then I'll be protected from bad things happening to me. Or somehow, if I do all the right things and I do what the Bible tells me to do, then it'll ensure that I will get the things that I most deeply want. Has anybody ever thought that earlier in Christian life, right? Yeah, it's common, it's common. But then, we might not get the things that we most deeply want or something bad might happen to us in spite of the fact that we've been doing all the right things and trying to do what the Bible says, right? Um, and, and it's disorienting. We might become disillusioned with God. Hmm? Disillusioned with God. We might start thinking, well, that God isn't true because look it. He was supposed to do X, Y, and Z, but he didn't, so he must not exist. Completely wrong response. The, the right response is to look much more carefully at what I actually believe about God and whether or not that's actually who God is and whether or not that's actually what the Bible teaches. So if in that moment when God doesn't deliver the way that we think he's supposed to, if we talk it out with him, if we really have it out with him, if we start swinging punches at him, hmm, how many of you have sworn in your prayer? Come on, Johnny, I know you. Come on, how many people have dropped the F-bomb in your prayers? Not enough of you. God likes it when we take a swing at him in prayer. You know why? Because it demonstrates that we believe he's close enough to hit. So we talk it out with him. And we begin to understand, maybe, we might come to understand that God does not promise us protection from all bad things, but he promises that he will be with us in them and that they won't have the last word. To become a Christian is not an immunization from the human experience. Rather, it ensures that God will be with us in our human experience, helping us, comforting us, showing us deeper truths, giving us greater strength and peace than we ever could have imagined. Disillusionment with God, the far-off divine vending machine, enables us to believe more importantly and more importantly to know God, the loving presence who is right here with me no matter what I'm going through and helps me get through it. Cleopas and the other disciple were disillusioned and it was a gift. They thought Jesus was going to be the one to redeem Israel, by which they meant getting rid of the Romans and reasserting their national pride. Jesus would indeed be the one to redeem God's people, but what it actually meant was taking the punishment on himself for the sins of the world, including our own, and actually defeating our biggest enemy, which is death. The biggest enemy in the world is not ISIS. The biggest enemy in the world is death. 
for each one of us. And Jesus was about forgiving us of our sins and conquering our greatest enemies so that anyone can find forgiveness of their sins and even more so have eternal life through Jesus himself. Not just for tiny old Israel, but anyone in the whole world across all time. That includes me, it includes you. And they were beginning to understand because Jesus was going to give them a new understanding of how God actually works. So their experience begins to go from disorientation to a radical, joyful reorientation. It begins to move from disillusionment to the glorious real. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wow. Beth Moore is a good Bible teacher. But she would have nothing on Jesus going through the Old Testament, talking about how we can understand him in all of it. Isn't that amazing? My goodness, how much would you pay for that? You know, can you imagine how amazing that must have been and, and, and how accurate we heard Isaiah 9 read this morning. Wouldn't you love Jesus? Wouldn't you love Jesus uh, telling you, hearing him tell you what it means that his name is Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace? Wouldn't you love to hear Jesus' take on that? That's what these guys were getting. Man. But right here, they still don't recognize him. They still don't recognize him. They know that there's something about this guy that's awfully compelling, right? We're not our hearts burning on the road when he opened the scriptures to us. He's got an air of authority. He knows the Bible. He's making sense of it all for us. But, shoot, our seven-mile walk is almost finished. We're at Emmaus. Our home is in sight, and night is almost here. Our journey is over. But it wasn't. Not remotely neither physically and certainly not spiritually. Verse 28, they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Mm, I love this too. It doesn't all make sense yet, right? You know, I don't understand it all yet, but there's something about you. There's something about your presence. And so they didn't merely suggest that he come over. They didn't merely open an invitation to him. They didn't offer hospitality. No, they urged him strongly. It's in there, right? Yeah, urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. And he did. Because that's what he does. When we call out, Jesus, stay with me, he does, because that's what he does. So then he celebrates the Eucharist with them, and when he did so, they recognized him, and he was gone. And so you know what they did? They got right back up. They went back the other direction, back towards Jerusalem, right, another seven miles, probably a lot faster this time than in the walking over, just because of sheer excitement and adrenaline, and joy, and wonder. They had to share this news. He's alive. He's actually alive. We've got to tell the others. And so they probably ran. 
And they made it back to the others and they said, the Lord is risen indeed. Just like we started our service this morning. And as they're telling their story, guess who shows up? This is verse 36. And as they were talking about these things, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be to you. So it's Easter season now in the church and we're still unpacking the resurrection of Jesus and all that that means. The first, things, the first thing that it means, my brothers and sisters, the first thing that the resurrection means is that Jesus is really alive. And in a few weeks, we'll celebrate Pentecost, the coming of Jesus' spirit onto his disciples for the, and, and, and then onwards. And the first thing that that means, my brothers and sisters, is now Jesus can be with us. Not only is he alive, but by his spirit, now he can be with us. And that means the world when we find ourselves a little or a lot of disoriented or disillusioned or discouraged or disheartened or even just a little bit sad. The story of Cleopas and the disciples, whose name could be our own, tells us what to do when life feels a little bit like that. And uh, it's a little bit silly to try to cram seven things into the last minute of a sermon, Johnny. <clears throat> but they're very simple, so I'm going to try. And I'm very glad that this will be on the web. When I'm having my human experience, when life gets weird, when life gets hard, how does the resurrection of Jesus and the Emmaus Road show me what to do? Seven things. First, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Jesus is drawing near in ways that we may not see. And he is preparing us for an encounter that will lead us to a much greater understanding of the real. Do not be afraid. Second, try to figure it out with a friend. Bring somebody in, somebody that you know, somebody that you trust, somebody who also believes. Third, have it out with Jesus. Tell him exactly how you actually feel and what you actually think of the whole bloody mess. Show up. He likes that. Fourth, urge him strongly to stay with you and then try to figure out how he is. Fifth, create space to listen. In other words, let him talk. Create space to listen. Number six, when you've gotten a new perspective, be sure to share that joy with others. There's a very real sense in which this sermon this morning for me is a stewardship of my own experiences of disillusionment, right? In other words, all I'm telling you is what I have learned on the other side of disillusionment, the number of times it's happened to me. I'm trying to share with you my joy at what I've learned about the way things actually are. And then number seven, lastly, Stay close to the Eucharist. Stay close to Holy Communion, just like we're going to do this morning. Jesus likes to reveal himself at tables. Let me close this with prayer. 
this is a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, an evening service, a little evening devotional thing, and so it, 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 recalls the, uh, it recalls the Emmaus Road. I'd like to pray it for us. Lord Jesus, stay with us, for evening is at hand and the day is past. Be our companion in the way, kindle our hearts, and awaken hope that we may know you as you are revealed in Scripture and in the breaking of bread. Grant this for the sake of your love. Amen.